Captain Crunch or Cocoa Puffs with milk. I mean, that that's like the addiction trifecta, gluten, dairy, and sugar. It's this like an opiate slam on your brain, right? So um, I didn't really like think that I'd be writing this book about sugar, but I really do believe that we've looked at sugar all wrong. And it all started with the glycemic index. And this isn't to bash the people that did the glycemic index because it gave us a great first step, but that's what it is. It's a first step. If you solely look at the glycemic index, you get in trouble because the glycemic index has a couple challenges with it. The first one being that they're pulling a 50 gram um, serving of a food, an isolated food, and then you're checking the blood response to it, which I'm always wondering with the blood sugar response, you've got to have someone who's very metabolically healthy too because otherwise that's gonna vary. So they're looking at the blood sugar response to that meal in to that food in isolation. And the challenge is we don't eat that way. Like no one's gonna sit down and eat 50 grams of broccoli or 50 grams of carrots. They might eat 50 grams of potato chips. They'll probably eat 200 grams of potato chips. So, but more likely we're gonna eat some carrots and maybe some chicken and maybe some you know broccoli and some rice we'll eat some combinations of foods so we've got to look at the combination the other challenge with it is that we've got to look beyond just blood sugar and look at insulin too collective insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being we explore the fields of neuroscience integrative medicine anthropology optimal psychology systems thinking and existential risk Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to Collective Insights. I am Dr. Dan Stickler. I am the medical director here at the Neurohacker Collective. And we have a great guest today, uh, one that many of you know. is This is JJ Burgeon. She's been um, an acquaintance of mine for many years and a good friend of my wife. And she just has fascinating stories on every subject, but today we're going to venture into something that is a little bit different. Uh, we're also going to talk about some of her, her new ventures and uh, her new book, but um, as a background, she's triple board certified uh, nutrition expert, fitness hall of famer, author of four New York Times bestsellers, and a prominent TV and media personality. JJ Virgin is a passionate advocate of eating and exercising smarter. JJ helps people stay fired up and healthy as they age. So they feel the best they ever have at the age of 40 plus. And this is an area that I'm passionate about, the age rejuvenation piece of it. And um, JJ, you've kind of started to venture into um, more in-depth work in age rejuvenation as well, haven't you? Well, it's interesting as you get older, what you, what you decide to focus on, <laughs> right? Cause I was hearing 40 plus I'm like 40, <laughs> like that's nothing. <laughs> Keep moving so, the goalpost. But I'll tell you what, Dan, it's, it, it is so amazing. The difference in, you know, in people when they take care of themselves and they start using all of these strategies, you'll see someone who's your age and they look 10 to 20 years older. Oh, I know it's scary. Uh, right. Seeing that out there. I mean, my mother is 75 years old this year. She's still doing CrossFit and active and social and just has a great time. So right on mom doing CrossFit. My mom Absolutely. is not doing CrossFit, but she's 91. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully my mom will continue to do CrossFit by that time. 
But let's get on with what we what we really are are here to talk about. And as a kind of a preview into this, love to have you share your story of uh, your experience with your son's um, traumatic brain injury. Yes. And boy, all the things you find out after the fact that I'm kind of looking at it going, why aren't we when when we start to notice things like depression or anxiety, aren't we looking back and going, boy, did you did you hit your head? Because if you hit your head, you hurt your brain. Now, my son really hit his head and really hurt his brain. Um, He was when he was 16 years old. And my other son, Bryce, was 15 years old. Grant was 16. He was crossing the street at dusk and he was hit by a car. We are not totally sure what happened because it was a hit and run. The neighbor just saw the woman get out of her car, gasp, get back in her car and drive off. Um, so all we know is that it was, she was probably going about 40 miles an hour. And my son is one tough kid is what I would have to say. Cause literally he had 13 fractures, multiple brain bleeds. He was in a deep coma and he had a torn aorta and he was airlifted to the local hospital. When we got there, the doctors ushered us into a conference room. So, I mean, I'm like sitting here going, I know nothing of what's happened, Dan. I just know that my son was airlifted. So, you know, it's not a broken leg and he's now been, we've been ushered into a conference room and the doctor looked at me and you've got to realize first where I was, I was in Palm Springs, California. The doctor was used to a very different population than a 16 year old boy. And so his perspective was so different. And he said, you know, your son has been in a very serious accident. He has a torn aorta and sometime in the next 24 hours, it's going to rupture if it isn't repaired, but we can't repair it here. It's a very specialized surgery. And he also has multiple brain bleeds. He's in a deep coma and he'll never survive that airlift to the next hospital. And even if he were to survive that airlift to the next hospital, he, he wouldn't survive the surgery. And then even if he were to survive both those things, he'd be so brain damaged, it wouldn't be worth it. My son, Bryce is looking at this doctor. And fortunately my son has been raised. Both my sons have been raised with a super positive mindset and also a family that are all either doctors or medical malpractice attorneys. So the doctor isn't up on the pedestal. And my son is looking at this doctor kind of like confused. And he says, Well, sounds like maybe there's a 0.25% chance he'd make it. Now, my son is now getting his PhD in math. He's very, very analytical. (laughs) The doctor's looking at him like with this very, you know, grim face saying, that sounds about right, son. He goes, well, that's not zero. (laughs) We'll take those odds. And so we airlifted Grant to the next hospital. And the whole situation was so different when we got there. There were five surgical teams waiting one of the doctors had accepted the case at midnight, had gotten hold of a stint that had been discontinued. It was in a study then, and they no longer were doing the study. He wanted that stint, wasn't approved for children. He said, I figured I'd ask for forgiveness. And he assembled four other surgical teams. We had a double orthopedic team fixing his broken legs. He had 13 fractures and a crushed heel. And, um, you know, dealing with the stint, we had neuro team, we had a, a peds critical care team. And the difference there is the doctor walks up to me and says, you, the mom. And I'm like, you know, it's like, what, what gave it away here? Right. (laughs) And, uh, he says, you know, I do this all the time. He said, we had a guy thrown off the overpass last week and I fixed him. You don't have to worry. I've got this. Let me just show you where I'm going to fix him up and gets me out of the room where they're all getting him ready for surgery. And literally comes back a couple hours later and said, all right, it's all done. Aorta is perfect. 
He goes, now I don't know if he'll ever wake up. That's the neurosurgeon. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I was standing next to Grant and it was about 24 hours in. So I'm a little delirious at this point. And I'm holding his fingers because literally everything has either got road rash, it's got a cast. Um, so I've got two fingers of his and I'm talking to him and I'm telling him he's a warrior. His name means warrior and um, that I love him. And the nurses are kind of looking at me with pity and you know they, he can't hear. And I don't know about you, but I've always been fascinated with, with near-death experiences and comas and all of that. For sure. Uh, not, I didn't really want to experience it this way, but <laughs> no. uh, you know, I, I always felt like they, they can hear you and you hear enough of those stories where they say they could hear everything. So I'm just going with that. And I said, Bryce, your brother, Bryce loves you so much. And Grant squeezes my finger and I'm thinking, Dan, I'm just exhausted. Clearly that's, I'm delirious. Right. Then I say, your grandma loves you. Nothing happens. And I said, your girlfriend Mackenzie loves you. And he tries to pick my fingers off the bed. And that's when I just got into my head. I go, you know, I am just going to stay focused on Grant being 110%. I said, Grant, you're going to be 110%. I need you to fight. I'm going to pull in all the resources to get you there. You just keep fighting. Cause I figured as long as he's alive, I still have options. Right. And that's how we proceeded. And it's been a long time. And what I'll tell you that's so frustrating about brain injuries is they are so common. Now, Grant's is the extreme. You know, this is obvious he had a brain injury. Right. What's scarier to me is all the ones that we don't realize out there that a kid on the playground hits his head and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're angry or the kid, they have unstable moods or they're depressed and no one puts it together. turns out it's the leading cause of death in kids. And like, there's something like 5 million people in America at any time that are struggling with a brain injury, yet there's really not a lot of resources. What I was told in the hospital is when he wakes up, it'll be ugly. Now I, I thought it would be ugly for like an hour. I didn't realize it'd be ugly for years. Right. Yeah. And you make a really good point about those undiagnosed. I mean, we had five boys that uh, all played ice hockey and, and lacrosse and we had, you know, they had a, one or two concussions at most um, without loss of consciousness, but yet we did brain maps on them and we identified two of them that had um, pretty significant evidence of TBIs and they did have, um, different aspects of their personality that uh, were indicative of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's this whole thing, well, he didn't lose consciousness. I'm like, if you hit your head and, and I love Dr. Daniel Amen says this so well, it's like you hit your head, you hurt your brain. That's it. Right. It's like a sloshy little, you know, egg instead of this, this thick shell, like you hit your head, you hurt your brain. So just because you didn't lose consciousness, doesn't mean you didn't hurt it. I was in a big car accident where somehow I got rear-ended and um, hit in the front, like bam, bam on the freeway. I didn't lose consciousness, but man, it took me a year to get my brain back from that. Yeah. yeah. So one of the key things I think that was, uh, there were so many things that helped Grant and we pretty much, you know, I threw everything I could find at him. Um, but one of the things that helped him before it ever happened, and I think is so important for people to realize is that you don't know when you're going to hit your head. It's not like you usually plan for it. I mean, you might decide you're going to be an MMA wrestler or something, then you kind of know, but, um, for Grant, it wasn't like this was planned. I already had him on a good dose of fish oil. And I know that was part of the reason he got through this because it protects your brain. So this is another reason, yet another reason to be on fish oil beyond all the other ones. 
Now, what year was that? That was 2012. It was September 10th. I remember thinking that he's going to, you know, he's going to die on September 11th. That was my, oh my gosh. Um, so we're coming up on year nine throughout the years. We took him out of, he, we took him out of the first hospital a little early and moved him to a rehab center. And then we took him out of that. It was children's hospital LA and moved him back home. Cause I felt like he would do better there. And we could also do things we couldn't do in the hospitals. Like we had no access to hyperbaric in the hospitals. We couldn't do acupuncture. We couldn't do neurofeedback, kind of some of the things that you would think in a rehab hospital you would be able to do. So, you know, couldn't do stem cells. I'm sure now that's changed, but back then um, we were kind of in the first group of um, patients that did interthecal stem cells where we harvested his stem cells, you know, adipose tissue, and then we right. had them expanded in a lab and then we had them injected into his spine. We also did laser guided stem cell work. Um, unfortunately now his stem cells are sitting locked up in a lab. <laughs> because we're not allowed to do that anymore. But um, the stem cells were pretty crazy because the first time we did stem cells, 72 hours after the stem cells, Grant started to act like he was coming out of coma again. And if you haven't seen someone come out of a coma, they lose their, their internal editor. So it, this could be really fun or really scary. You never know what's going to happen. Someone you know, might get outrageously angry or have really weird sexual behavior or whatever for Grant. Um, sometimes he would laugh hysterically and that was fun. And sometimes he would get super angry and it was like the incredible Hulk. And um, in fact, so much that when he was in the second hospital, we had to have him in a zip up bed and we had to put him into a uh, wheelchair where he could not get out of the wheelchair. We had to strap him in. And then if he started to get a little bit of a furrow in his brow, literally like the Incredible Hulk, right? Like the little green tinges happening. We would hit him with a cocktail of Haldol, Benadryl and, and uh, Ativan in order to keep him from going crazy. I mean, it would knock you and I out for probably a day. Him, it just calmed him down. And the trick was you didn't want to do it so much so his brain couldn't heal. But after we did the stem cells, we started to notice that about 72 hours in, he started getting like that again. And I just figured, you know what? That just means we're healing more. We're just waking up new brain cells and this is what we're getting first. So it definitely made a big difference, but we had to ride it, <laughs> ride that storm a bit. Yeah, it's very cool to to hear of the the treatments that were used in 2012. And when I was a uh, surgeon, when I was in surgery residency, I did uh, six months in trauma and critical care during the late 90s. And um, we dealt with a lot of brain injury then. And I look back at the things that we did. Some of the things were actually uh, somewhat detrimental, and some some of them were kind of cutting edge. But you know, we would hyperventilate people to constrict the blood flow to the brain to reduce swelling, and you know, we're just like doing these things, everything we could that we knew of to preserve at that time. But the thing was, we were, I mean, we were archaic in in what we were able to do, and I mean, we were. Um, focused on tube feeding, but didn't recognize the roles of the gut. We were working on um, respiratory mechanics and not really paying that much attention to the CO2 as we, as we should have been. And now we have all this data. And I mean, the gut brain connection now is a big area mm -hmm. that um, they're focusing on in the, uh, in the critical care setting for all aspects of trauma, but especially for TBI. Well, even in 2012, I mean, I had to fight to get them to put, give him fish oil. 
Um, and they wouldn't go over two grams because he was on a blood thinner. And I brought all the research in from Barry Sears. He gave me all of it. And they said, oh, it would have to go before the IRB. I'm like, I do not have time for this. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. Luckily he, he spit out his feeding tube. He deintubated himself. And then I was like, all right, game on. I'm going to, I'm going to do this behind your backs. Then if you're not going to let me do it. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I can never take him back and do it both ways, thankfully, but he started to talk when we took his fish oil from two to 20 grams, like the next day. So, you know, maybe it was just, uh, you know, a coincidence, but kind of hard to believe. Well, the interesting aspect of all of this is that we've, I think the reason we've been so slow in the progress of really helping the human system. I mean, you know, we're, we're in this disease model where you have to be diseased before we can do anything. We don't look at the health of the system as a, as a whole and looking at it from a, a complexity standpoint where we have all these things interacted to create the outcome. I mean, when we're dealing with the brain, everybody was focused on the brain itself and not on these aspects of like the nutrition, the, the gut health, the stress components of, of all the different inputs that are creating the process that's going on or the process, process that is going on that is creating dysfunction in other systems in the body. But we're starting to actually come around to that. And, um, you know, even now in the post um, TBI state, we've, we've come up with a lot of new interventions that are more holistic in a sense that they're addressing all aspects of the human system and approaching how we can get these post TBI um, patients into a more normal state because I mean, as you know, I mean, post TBI, there is some definite long-term aspects of, um, of stress, cognition, gut microbiome, all of that, that are going to mm -hmm. be disrupted. Oh my gosh. We did so much for his gut microbiome, but just, just in a hospital, you have someone who's got a brain injury. Would it make any sort of sense to give them insure or crystal light? <laughs> like, um, you know that artificial sweeteners can make them have, you know, potentially more seizure activity. You've got a possible, you know, potential possibility with seizures because you've got a brain injury. I had to argue with them about crystal light. They're like, what is he going to drink? I said, he's going to drink water. <laughs> It'll be great. <laughs> and then, you know, they wanted to give him insure. And I'm like, you know, we need to have him on a keto diet in here right now, because that's how his brain's going to be able to have some nutrition in there and some energy. Right? I'm sure that went over really well in 2012. <laughs> it, it just, um, it's just crazy though. Like they were just insistent on that. They were going to feed him this, this hospital food. And one of the first things that Grant said that I just went, Oh my gosh, this is like, my son is back. He said, that's disgusting and pointed to the hospital food. And I was like, we're not feeding him the hospital food. I would bring in things from whole foods. I had a Nutribullet. I was making smoothies. I was giving him extra aminos because he was so catabolic, you know, just the things that you would think were obvious that it was like, I was completely talking a foreign language. It's like, how could this be? <laughs> yeah. I can remember when we were doing, um, IV and, um, and, um, oral nutrition in the ICU through the feeding tubes, we were, um, focused so much on the carbohydrate content in the form of, of dextrose, typically of giving all this dextrose because the body was so hyper metabolic, but we were creating probably a great deal of inflammation 
with that at the time. And then on the fats, the only thing we focused on was in the fats was how it would affect the respiratory numbers that the patient had. It wasn't a focus on any other aspect of how the fats affected the system. And that's a, you know, that is an area that, you know, really there's a lot of research going into right now uh, with uh, trauma and TBI both where they're looking at studies using the ketogenic diet because there's been, you know, there's been good animal studies on showing the benefits of the ketogenic diet. And there's been some human studies that were informative of just saying that the, it, it appears to be safe to use, but then is there a benefit? And I know there's a couple studies ongoing right now that uh, are looking specifically at that uh, to see if there is a true benefit from the ketogenic diet and really healing the, uh, the, the acute TBI and in treating long-term. Well, I can tell you from just being able to watch it, you know, um, you can pretty much see when you're working through this, what's, what's working and what's not really quickly. And it granted it is an N of one, but I looked at everything and that's what I was trying to explain to the hospital. I'm, I'm like, I look at the risk reward here and there's like really low risk, really high reward. Like, let's do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like let's do these things. Let's kick up this fish oil. Let's, let's get rid of this gross hospital food and have him do this. I can see him being more aware. He's making eye contact. You know, you, you can tell, you can see it immediately. So sadly enough, um, these things are always slow to shift, but well, and that N of one is part. the important mm -hmm. thing. This is what we have to start paying attention to is N of one in all aspects of, of human health, because we are a, we are not a monoclonal uh, race of, of humans. I mean, the mice studies and the rat studies, they typically use monoclonal, so they're all the same. So they're really getting an N of one over a hundred uh, N of ones. It's not like it's looking at the uh, uh, heterogeneous population in general, and then you've got to come up with an average. And I think there's a lot of people, especially in the industry we run in, where the N of one has become the, the standard rather than the what we call the protocol or standards of care that, that exist in medicine right now. And it does, it works. I mean, you try stuff, like you said, you gave the fish oil and you saw the response immediately. So why would you say, okay, well, we can't do that because this isn't allowed. You say, well, it's working. So why don't we try this and see where it goes? From well, here? especially when it's something like they're going, oh, we can't do it because he's on warfarin. I go, so what I would do is every time I knew they were going to run his blood and check his pro time, I would pump up his fish oil, no change. <laughs> you know, so I was like going, it's not changing anything, which is all the papers and data I gave you said the same thing, but if that's the risk and it's not having a risk, why, what's, why wouldn't we do this? It's just crazy, the stuff, but I mean, it's no different with everything going on right now. So same, same silliness out there in the world. You know, I don't even know where that came from because when I was doing general and vascular surgery, my, my patients would always say, you know, I got this, this list from the hospital. They said, you know, don't take fish oil prior to surgery. And I was just like, why, why is that? Why does that exist? I mean, fish oil is, I have no problem operating on somebody with fish oil or I didn't. Um, so it, it didn't make any sense to me, but the thing is we don't question these things. Uh, right. I'm dogmatic and we quit questioning the whys of, of why we're doing it. Well, it's just like, it's just like being told to eat six times a day. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I say, why not, why not just eat when you're hungry? 
you know, that's not a real difficult one to, uh, to pay attention to listening to the body. Which... Well, when you really learn how to discern that you're hungry and that's one of the challenges is we've so messed up the food supply to create all this false hunger. That's not really hunger. It's a craving, right? That, that if you tell people to eat when they're hungry, they, they have gotten so out of touch with what hunger really feels like. I'd say eat when you're hunger, hungry, when you've waited it out, you feel hungry, then you go have some water. Then you wait it out for another 30 to 60 seconds, 60 minutes. See if you're really hungry. Cause you probably aren't even actually hungry. You just saw a commercial or you went into Starbucks and you saw a muffin and all of a sudden you triggered everything and you're not hungry at all. Right. And that's, we, we call that interoception in our clients. You know, we train them to be interoceptive um, in understanding what these signals are. You know, do I feel sleepy? Do, um, do I have to go to the bathroom? Do I feel hungry? Do I feel thirsty? And understanding when those are true signals versus the, like you said, that they're, they're triggers that are, that are happening. Uh, but let's talk about that. Let's, you know, these, these false dogmatic beliefs in nutrition, um, you know, we can, we could talk about, you know, the belief of how we have to take so much simple sugars in, we have to um, follow glycemic index rules. Mm -hmm. I mean, low fat is the way to go to be healthy. I mean, where are we now with, with these rules? I mean, what's happening with them? And I feel like instead of us, like just really figuring out what works best for you, we keep swinging to different rules. Like one will come into vogue and then it will go out. I still remember, um, cause I was in my twenties when all of the stuff came out that fat makes you fat and, or I'm sorry, that fat, yeah, fat makes you fat. That sugar is, is your energy source. That's what you should eat, that you should never let yourself get hungry by the way, because that's when you get in trouble that you should have breakfast, a snack, lunch, a snack, dinner, and a snack before bed. You should not go to bed hungry which, you know, that is just the craziest idea ever of this and that you want to eat very low fat, you know, and as, as close to vegetarian, vegan as possible and super high carb. And uh, uh, do you remember, um, oh God, what was her name? Susan powder. It would yeah. be all yeah. stop the insanity. So I still remember all of that. I was in, I was in doctoral school for exercise science. And so we were not really addressing all of this. And I remember using all this. I was in my twenties. I was personal training and working out probably four to six hours a day. And my body fat, I remember we were trying to figure out body fat. We were doing all the different body fat measurements at USC and like calibrating. And my body fat was reading at like 24, 25%. Now, I'm working out hours a day. I'm doing hit training. I'm doing resistance training. I'm doing all sorts of stuff. And, but I'm eating carbs, 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 like all the time. Yep. And now this is, I'm 58, I'm 13% body fat. I work out maybe, you know, 20 to 40 to sometimes 60 minutes a day. And I eat two to three times a day and I eat low carb, high fat. So you tell me. Yeah. what's going on. Right. But you know, where all that stuff came from, you still see it swinging around. I mean, you still see these diets coming out, telling people that they should be eating all throughout the day to keep their blood sugar stable, but they don't mention that that just keeps your blood sugar up. Yeah. So I, I heard high that. stable. Dr. Do you remember Dr. Crayon? 
Uh, so he is actually who got me into nutrition way, way, way back when. I was already studying it, but I wasn't like deep into it. And I had a client who's nutritionist in New York. He was her mentor. And um, so I'm talking to this nutritionist and she said, you should read this book, Nutrition Made Simple by Robert Cran. And so I read it, called him and ended up working. He was part of a company called Designs for Health. That's how I ended up with Designs for Health because I wanted to learn everything he had to say. Yeah. And that's when I really started studying. I ended up with, he'd um, worked with Lauren Cordain. I ended up in like a room for three days with Lauren Cordain for eight hours a day, learning from him. I mean, it was amazing, amazing stuff. And back then the things that they were saying were like the opposite of everything being taught out there. Exactly. I mean, no one really knew what the paleo diet was back then. Yeah, I went to a talk in 2000 uh, that Crayon put on and um, he talked about the caveman diet. And I was like, what is this? Yeah. This is wow. Was that a, was that Boulder Fest? I can't remember which one it was. It was so long <laughs> ago. But it just it completely changed my my thinking on nutrition after hearing him. And, uh, you know, I think he's, he's been an underappreciated, um, kind of icon of the past that, uh, that really helped to launch a lot of this industry. He did. Cause he was sadly, he's no longer with us. I don't know if you're aware of that. Right. Um, but like, he was one of my best friends for a couple of years and, um, he taught, he made everything so simple to understand and he gave you things so you would remember them. He didn't try to complicate it. He didn't try to confuse you. He didn't try to use big words. He just simplified it down. And I remember one of his lines and with that, that makes so much sense. He said, you know, I want competition for my food. If you put margarine outside, the bugs are not gonna touch it. <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, these are such simple concepts that anybody can understand. And, you know, just some things that he would say, because people go everything in moderation. He goes, I'm sorry, but artificial sweetener should not be in moderation. You know, damaged fat shouldn't be in moder moderation. These things hurt you. They're basically toxic to you. There's no amount of them that should be okay. And so what kind of sugars do you recommend with um, people you do nutritional consulting with? So it's funny. I, you know, if you'd said to me, 12 years ago, you're going to be like one of the big people like talking sugar. I go, nah, I'm not, you know, I, I, I kind of stumbled upon food intolerance because I was doing something with designs for health where I was, we'd taken some metametrics testing and we put it into, I I'd created this, this way to teach it to them. They DFH had done a, a deal with them to create testing where it would spit out recommendations. And I put it together on how to teach it to doctors to use with their patients. One of the tests was a food sensitivity test. And what I saw was that, you know, we'd been using an elimination diet and I was, I was like, why do we have citrus and berries in here? Why do we have all this stuff in here? I'm looking at food sensitivity tests and it's always dairy and eggs and they're corn, soy, and peanuts. And then of course you looked at gluten differently, but gluten was like the big thing causing a lot of the leaky gut problems. So that's, that's where virgin diet came from. And the only reason sugar got added into that at the time, because when I first started working with this, what I call a simplified elimination diet was, um, I didn't take sugar out. And when I told people to pull these six foods out, guess what they ate? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't have a sweet tooth. So it would never dawn on me if I'm, if you say, Hey, you know, you can't eat that bagel that I would go eat some 
gluten-free cupcake or something horrible. So once I started realizing that I pulled sugar out too, and you know, let's look at sugar, sugar, especially artificial sweeteners are going to mess up your gut microbiome and they're going to make you more glucose intolerant and, and fructose can make your gut leakier. So sugar is going to disrupt your gut microbiome and create more food intolerance as well. But once I wrote that, the biggest challenge people had was with sugar because, um, you know, they're either confused. They think, Oh, it's honey. It's agave. It's natural. It's all good. Right. I can have that. Mm -hmm. Or they, um, they're just addicted. They can't get rid of it. And, um, you know, we've done like genetically, there's some people when I was on freaky eaters, we do this genetic test to see if people had a sweet tooth or were a sweet taster. There are all those people that just have a sweet tooth. And then there's those people who the more sweet they eat, the more sweet they want. We all have a little bit of that, that exposure equals preference, but some people just genetically have that exponentially. And then of course there's disrupting the gut microbiome or maybe having candida that's going to make you crave more sugar. And then there's stress that's going to lower your serotonin and there's sleep problems that are going to make you crave more sugar. And then there's just the processed food that creates addiction. I mean, you look at like cereal and milk, Captain Crunch or Cocoa Puffs with milk. I mean, that that's like the addiction trifecta, gluten, dairy, and sugar. It's this like an opiate slam on your brain, right? So um, I didn't really like think that I'd be writing this book about sugar, but I really do believe that we've looked at sugar all wrong. And it all started with the glycemic index. And this isn't to bash the people that did the glycemic index because it gave us a great first step, but that's what it is. It's a first step. If you solely look at the glycemic index, you get in trouble because the glycemic right. index has a couple challenges with it. The first one being that they're pulling a 50 gram um, serving of a food, an isolated food, and then you're checking the blood response to it, which I'm always wondering with the blood sugar response, you've got to have someone who's very metabolically healthy too because otherwise that's going to vary. So they're looking at the blood sugar response to that meal in ice, to that food in isolation. And the challenge is we don't eat that way. Like no one's going to sit down and eat 50 grams of broccoli or 50 grams of carrots. They might eat 50 grams of potato chips. They'll probably eat 200 grams of potato chips. So, but more likely we're going to eat some carrots and maybe some chicken and maybe some, you know, broccoli and some rice, we'll eat some combinations of foods. So we've got to look at the combination. The other challenge with it is that we've got to look beyond just blood sugar and look at insulin too, because you've got foods like agave, something that's super high in fructose. So agave, apple juice concentrate, um, they aren't going to raise your blood sugar like, like you, you would expect. And so they look like they're a great food. And that's why agave ended up in crystalline fructose ended up being these things that everybody thought were so great, except they're not great. They don't raise blood sugar, which looks great, but it's actually even worse because now this is going straight to the liver where if it can't be converted to, to glucose and stored as glycogen, and it can't, cause there's not a lot of room there. So it's already full, most likely then it's going to be stored as fat. And it's also more glycating than any of the other sugars, more aging seven times more. And it also can make your gut more permeable. So it's a super problematic one, but it's also nice and sweet. So it's great for the food companies to use. And it was easy for the, the food company to say, Hey, low on the glycemic index, or they could do apple juice concentrate and say no added sugar and create all of these problems. So when I looked at sugar, I really wanted to reframe the way we looked at it because I think we have to look at all carbs because all carbs turn to sugar. It's just whether we're making them slowly from the food we eat, there's a big difference between broccoli 
or a bagel, right? Or we're mean lining it, we're making it quickly. So we wanna make sure that carbs we're eating and remember all carbs, but we're pulling fiber out, doesn't count. All carbs are gonna to turn to sugar. We want those ones that are gonna be made slowly from the foods you eat. And we know what those are. I mean, it's non-starchy vegetables at the top. Yeah. And that you're not mainlining them. And then to really look at these foods and go, all right, these foods that are mainly carbs, what's their nutrient density look like? How much fiber do they have? These are the reasons that we're eating them. You know, what's their phytonutrients? And then you contrast that with how much do they impact your blood sugar and or insulin? Um, how much fructose do they have? Because fructose is going to be super problematic there. So mm -hmm. the reason that's important is then we can look at something that has no calories and looks like it's awesome. You know, one of these artificial sweeteners that we were looking at and going, why is it that people that drink a diet soda a day, it's, it's contrasted with people that drink a regular soda a day, have an inch bigger waist circumference have, how is it that people who are drinking a diet soda every day have a 33% increased risk in diabetes? What is going on that would do those things? And at first it was, oh, well, they must be having the diet Coke and thinking they can have cookies. That is not what's happening. What happened is, is that it's changing the gut microbiome. It's making you more glucose intolerant. They showed that happening within a week. It also changes like when you eat sweet, you want more sweet. So I kind of have a challenge with all of the different sweeteners. Cause I think when you start to eat sweet and especially if you're one of those sweet tasters, you can get yourself in trouble because you'll want more and more and more sweet. So just because it's stevia or monk fruit or allulose doesn't give you like, you know, it's not a free pass. Well, the availability of, um, of sugars in general, um, you know, ancestrally was, was extremely low. I mean, you know, it was, basically honey that was the the main sweetener or or fruits that right um, no added sugar ancestrally right. like the paleo diet there was no added sugar and the realistic thing here and this is super interesting when you look at this like when did we have the majority of fruit available was in the summer in the summer we have the longest days we have the longest days we're sleeping the least we're sleeping the least we're more insulin resistant so we can take the fructose from the fruit we can easily get better at storing fat so that we can then access that store of fat when we're more insulin sensitive in the winter when we're sleeping more. How about milk? Which, uh, you know, we, we get all of our clients off of, um, off of milk, but, you know, I still see a lot of people in, in the medical industry that are real promoters of milk intake. And it just, it boggles my mind. Well, it does a body good, Dan. Oh yeah. <laughs> Remember oh, the milk wait. mustache? I was on Dr. Phil doing his weight loss challenges when Dr. Phil came out with the milk mustache. I'm like, now how do I deal with this? You know, <laughs> how do I how do I address this situation here? Um, so it's one of the first foods that I pull people off of um, when I run those food sensitivity tests. Dairy and eggs are the top two culprits. I, eggs make me sad. And I think it's really because we've, you know, if you're eating a pastured egg, it's an entirely different food mm -hmm. than what we've done to these eggs. But for dairy, especially like, what's the single worst thing you could do with dairy skim milk, like take out, take out the fat and yeah. then skim it. So you just basically are drinking liquid sugar, right? <laughs> exactly. I just find so many people react to it and create inflammation from it. And that creates so many cravings. Um, it's one of the easiest things I can pull out of the diet and see a big impact from, and let's face it now it's when I first wrote the virgin diet, it was really hard. I was like, okay, swap out gluten, dairy, eggs, corn, soy, peanuts, sugar, and artificial sweeteners. And 
there weren't the options there are now. Now, I'm not saying go eat a bunch of processed stuff, but at least there are all these nice options. Like Kite Hill has a great almond Greek style yogurt. You know, you know how to now make like cashew cream cheese. There's all sorts of things that you can do here and avoid dairy. So it's, it's really pretty easy to get the dairy out. Plus even back when I wrote it the first time, you could only find coconut milk in the, you know, Asian food aisle in a can. So (laughs) now we have a lot of options. I have to share this story because you will enjoy this. Um, In the early 2000s, when our children were um, in elementary school, I went to the uh, the school board uh, dietary um, meeting where they were talking about the um, the meals for the school plan. And one of the things that they had on the on the plan, and it was it was bothering me, is they had this stuff called moo milk. Have you ever heard of that? Moo milk. I don't, I don't know. Is it like chocolate it is, milk? Is it, it milk is without any sugar? Sweetened <laughs> milk. Yeah. Uh, so they take these little cartons that, that are generally like, I think it, they were 90 calories and they make them to 160 calories. And why, why did they well, do that? Well, this is what I said. I said, why, <laughs> why do you have sweetened milk on the menu? And the dietitian that was there said, because studies have been shown that they'll drink more when it's sweetened. Why and do you I, want them to drink more? That's what I said. And we want them to drink more. And she goes, well, it prevents rickets. And I said, "Rickets." I said, you know, I've been in the medical industry for about 15 years and I don't think I've ever seen a case of rickets. And, you know, I could see her nodding her head like, uh-huh, see, I told you. And I said, but I oh see a gosh. lot of diabetes in children now. <laughs> and I said, so this doesn't make any sense to me, but it was getting nowhere. Wow. Wow. That is so disappointing. I know it's, um, I remember in school, we'd one girl who was, uh, was overweight and now she'd probably be considered normal by the way, not yeah. overweight, <laughs> but she was the one girl who was overweight. Oh my gosh. She was teased relentlessly. And now you go in, I mean, what is it now? One in one in four children are obese. Like, like yeah. kids come on. Yeah. It's good. <sighs> Well, and I asked them about, you know, vegetable servings on the, on the offerings for the menu. Oh, tater tots and ketchup. Yeah. Or, or peaches in syrup uh, counts yeah. as a um, produce. So. so the challenge is we're training our kids early on these things. And I mean, first of all, you know, that if you are an overweight kid, the likelihood of being an overweight adult is like 70%. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it on the exposure equals preference, if you learn these foods when you're young, and you don't learn how to eat things like broccoli and, you know, fish and that stuff, you are set up for trouble. I did that show freaky eaters. And, you know, I, uh, when, when I first auditioned for that, I'm like this, like, there's no way this, this show is a show. Um, we won't have enough people, but like, literally I could still be doing that show. I could do that. I could, we could run that show 52 weeks a year and never run out of people. You would be amazed how many people, especially were addicted to things like French fries. That's all they would eat. Yeah. I'm like, how did that happen? I remember having a mom come to me and she goes, my son will only eat microwave bacon. That's all he will eat. And I'm like, well, does he have a car and a credit card? Like, I don't, how's this happening? I don't understand. (laughs) Have you let him get hungry? (laughs) Yeah. Chicken nuggets and French fries were uh, like the staple where, uh, where we lived initially and uh, all the kids, that's, that's all they ever ate chicken nuggets and french fries wow yeah isn't it funny how um 
like one of the things when with the virgin diet was like, wow, look at what we eat for breakfast. Like the stuff for breakfast is dessert. That, that muffin, if you take, you know, take the frosting off a cupcake, it's a muffin. But then you look at the, the restaurants and the kids menu and the kids menu is just like, there's nothing healthy on a kid's menu. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they're making some progress in that area, but, uh, but it's still way, way behind. My I mean, kids and, had and never had cereal. They had, you know, and then they went to Grammys. Now I <laughs> growing up, my nickname was Poppy because, um, I loved pop tarts. I had either cocoa puffs, captain crunch pop tarts, or like sweet rolls for breakfast pretty much every day. And then at age 12, I completely rebelled against all of it <laughs> and stopped mm -hmm. it all and started studying nutrition and drove my mother crazy. But, um, my kids, so my kids were having like you know, burger patties and chicken and fruit and that for breakfast. And then they go to my mom's <laughs> and my mom, they have cereal. And you can imagine what happened after that, the challenge that I had. <laughs> well, my sister sent me a, uh, a package one Christmas and it was all of the foods that we ate as children. And it was, it was disgusting to actually look at. I mean, I would eat three bowls of golden grams uh, with milk every morning for breakfast. Oh, would, those golden grams. Yeah. How about those? <laughs> Come home from school. I got a ho-ho or a Twinkie, and then uh, I'd make a Chef Boyardee pizza in the oven, uh, eat the whole thing. And then, you know, the, the meals that my mother would prepare were always healthy and, and good, healthy meals. But it was the stuff in between that I was just, I mean, I don't know how you know, when we were younger, how we did that, I think the activity level compensated quite a bit for, uh, for what we were doing. But, you know, I look back at it and I was just like, how did we survive childhood with the, the kind of foods that we ate? I know. <laughs> Hostess pies, ding-dongs, Twinkies, ho-hos. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> now I want to shift a little bit here and, um, and talk about stress and mindset. Uh, this is an area that I know you talk about a lot. And uh, when it comes to, to nutrition and, um, and really a healthy lifestyle, I mean, mindset plays an enormous role in that. Well, Dan, mindset plays a, a, like the starring role in everything, Absolutely. right? You know, it's so funny when I um, went to write Warrior Mom, which was a story about how I showed up during all that was happening with Grant. And, um, and that will be a really easy way to, to explain how I see mindset and health. The publishers were like, but you're a diet book author. And I'm like, read my books. The first thing I talk about is mindset. That is step one with all of these things. And, you know, you getting really clear on why this is important, seeing yourself already there. Like, what is your life like when you don't have gas and bloating, when you have great energy, when you can focus, when your mood is stable, right? Like, how does that change your life? What are you going to be able to do? And then you just put yourself there already. When Grant got hit and I was describing that like first 24 hours in the hospital, I remember standing there, um, I'd gone back. I'd had like a two hour rest and I was back now. And it was the second night and I'm standing in the hospital and I'm surveying the, the situation that I'm now in, um, now that he's survived. And so I'm in the hospital, he's going to be in the hospital and we have no idea for how long he's in a coma. We have no idea. So I'm not going anywhere except to go somewhere to sleep every single night. 
I have my other son who's now two and a half hours away, who's 15, who just saw his brother on a stretcher, right? With bones sticking through his skin, not knowing if he's going to survive an airlift. And my um, ex-husband went back to stay with him. And I have the Virgin Diet coming out and it's the launch is in a couple of weeks and I've invested everything into the book and I'm the financial support of my family. It's all on me. And so if the book doesn't go, I'm bankrupt and I will not be able to help Grant. So I'm standing there going, all right, (laughs) you know, like, how do I make this work? I asked the right question, which I think in mindset, number one, it's like, it's like, it has to do with the questions you ask. If I'd said, you know, how do I help Grant survive? That's a very different question than how do I help Grant get to 110%? And then how do I do this? What's, what's my part here? And I went in order to pull this off, I have to put my self-care above all else because I can't walk into this ICU. If I have a sniffle, I was had to walk in, I had to be gloved. I had to be masked. I had to be in a gown. So I couldn't be sick. I had to be there, you know, I was getting, getting there usually six, 7 AM. And I was leaving there sometime between seven and 9 PM every night. Um, and I just said, the only way I'm going to pull, pull this off is to get anything that's not important off my plate, anything that does not save my son's life and help him be 110%, make sure my son's taken care of and crush this book. So that like success is no longer optional. I can afford to do anything I need to do for my son. Everything else is off the plate. And so I put my self-care at the top of the list and made sure I got my sleep every night. Every night I was getting eight, eight hours of sleep. I had people, when they asked me what they could bring, I had them bring food from whole foods. And I made sure I worked out every day, whether it was running up and down the hospital stairs, I found a gym that was a quarter mile away and I just snuck stuff in. And I thought to myself, you know, wow, this, the virgin diet, you know, it was drop seven foods, lose seven pounds, just seven days. It was built around weight loss because no one had really looked at how an elimination diet can help with weight loss. But I realized I walked in at the top of my, the peak of my game. Right. And I thought, gosh, you know, we never know when something challenging is going to hit us. The amount of stress that I was under at that time was crazy. One of my doctor friends, Hyla Cass walked in, which is like a bag full of stress supplements for me. Um, but I think that, what if I hadn't been at the top of my game? What if I'd been one of those people that always says, Hey, I'll start that tomorrow. And so when you look at this, when I queried my community a couple of years ago, and I said, if you're not where you want to be with your health and with your weight, why not? The number one thing I heard was, I don't feel like I'm worthy. I'm good enough. Like that is your first start. You have to treat yourself as the, you know, amazing divine person that you are, that's here to do huge things. And in order to do those huge things, in order to show up when it's challenging, because it's the one thing we know for sure, there's going to be challenges you have to take care of yourself. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to the world, right? And you can't do that tomorrow because you never know what's going to happen. Like I didn't, would never have guessed in a million years what I was going to go through, but I was ready for it. And uh, that's what I think we need to do with our, I know we need to do with our mindset is your mindset's a muscle. It needs to go to the gym, just like everything else. It's something that you must work on every single day, because if you don't, I mean, just witness this last year of fear and negativity that's gone on, that's taken down like the world, right? Yeah. I love that. I mean, you know, you're, you're speaking my language on that because I mean, the mindset is, is one of the biggest pieces we work with. We work with uh, all aspects of it, but 
if you don't have the right mindset, you're not going to make progress. I mean, one of the first things we do is we get people to dispense with any, any, with any titles or diagnoses. Like if they come in and they say, I'm diabetic, I'm saying, no, you're not diabetic. You have insulin resistance and we're going to, we're going to work on that with lifestyle. When they get rid of those tags, that's one mm-hmm. aspect of mindset that we use, but also having the, the mindset of we're not broken. Right. You know, everybody comes in and they're all talking about how broken they are. I'm just like, we're not broken. You know, don't look at yourself as broken. Let's, let's look at how we can be more optimized with where we are. Let's, let's tap into that potential that's within us rather than trying to run away from something negative. Let's move towards something positive. And, you know, your whole story is really in alignment with, with what we talk about on the stress piece too, with, um, going beyond even resilience into, you know, <clears throat> taking Nassim Taleb's, um, uh, wording become anti-fragile where I see resilience as, as coming into a, a stress area in your life in whatever way it is. I mean, classically, this COVID has been the perfect example in the last year you come into this and you can face these challenges. And if, if, you're, if you're good and resilient, you can face the challenge, take the impact, and then come out of it back to baseline. Whereas anti-fragile people, and this is what I would classify you as, is somebody who can come into a challenge, face that challenge, and actually come out of it with an emergent trait of being stronger than they went into it with. And that's really, I love that you just said that, because that is the reality when you really start to look at people who are successful. When I define success, it's kind of like you're winning at life. You are able to like be around the people you want to be around, make the impact you want to make. And what I've noticed is with all of those people, they have not had it easy. And you think it was just the opposite. You think, oh, that person over there that's so successful, you know, they just got lucky. The reality is most of them have been more unlikely, unlucky than most, and they've gone through bigger challenges than most. Mm -hmm. And every single time it's like they, you know, went to the gym, lifted a bunch of stuff and got a lot stronger every single time. When I went through this, I was sitting down with my sons, Grant and Bryce and my ex-husband, John, and we were sitting around talking a couple of years ago about how much better we all are, how much stronger we are, how much better we are as a family, how, how much better we are at life. I mean, when you go through something like this, most of the stuff that people get concerned about, it's not even a blip on my radar screen anymore. Right. I'm like, you're worried about that. Who's dying here? Like that is much more of my litmus test on this. Right. Yeah. That's uh, that is something that I would love to see, see people start paying more attention to is, is really, you know, are you in that state where you become stronger. I mean, it's classic too. I mean, people think of stress as bad, but stress is really, uh, it can be a good thing. It's, it's, it allows the system to adapt. Just like right. you said, exercise, you go to the gym. I mean, exercise is a major stressor in your day. I mean, you follow your stress scores on your watch or your HRV and you see it really impacts those, but then there, your baseline becomes higher, um, as far as low stress and, uh, and higher, uh, recovery response the more you do that, that's anti-fragility. And this is, this is, can be, this can be applied across the entire spectrum of our life. So we've got to teach people that stress, stress done correctly is good. Right. Reframe it, you know, stress. And it's, it's why I love high intensity interval training. Think what it teaches your body, how to do handle high level stress, recover, handle high level stress, recover. 
right? Yep. So how, what would you recommend for people to get started down this, this, this whole path? I mean, we talked about a lot of things, but it, it is a lot of things. Health is not just <laughs> one thing. So what's your, your guidelines on getting people started on this? It's funny. I wrote out a roadmap um, a while ago that I've been really messing with. If, if I were going to start all over, you know, just today and go, okay, it's time to get healthy. Where would I start? What would be my number one thing? Well, my number one thing would be to commit because nothing happens without a commitment. So that always has to be number one is that, is that decision and that commitment. And ideally, like if you look at how do people make a commitment, it's time or money or both. So if you're listening, you're going, okay, it's really time that I do something. I say, find that person who you resonate with and hire them and then block out the time that you're going to do. Like I just went to a Joe Dispenza seven day meditation workshop. And I was sitting there with, with my husband going, all right, we have to mark this out in our calendar and just make this commitment that we are going to be doing meditation at home every day. And then we're going to go back so that we make sure that we really do this. Right. So how do you commit and then really see that future life of like you are committing now and you're committing. And why are you doing this? What is the outcome that you're looking to achieve and put yourself already into that outcome. So I always start with the mindset first. I think that it's key critical. And then the next thing that I think that's probably very different than how most people approach this is I think that you add before you take away. And this is a Robert Cran ism is like, what if before you started looking at all the things you needed to take out and I like to swap rather than remove. Um, you know, if you're eating a gluten, a, a gluteny something like uh, a gluten bun, switch to a gluten-free bun before we switch to lettuce leaves. Like we'll just do a level levels of swaps. But the first thing is what it would happen if you just went, you know what, I am just going to make sure that I eat more non-starchy vegetables every day. I make sure I get five plus servings of organic non-starchy vegetables. That's step one. Number two, I'm going to make sure I'm starting to get in, you know, water every single day, clean water every day. I'm going to start with eight glasses. Then I'm going to make sure I get enough clean protein in every day. Like you just started with those things. You'll start to push out some of the other stuff. Yeah. So How about add before you take away. <laughs> is, is that a good, is your, your book on the warrior mom, uh, you, would you recommend that to get, get started on really getting the mindset going to, uh, to the mindset is definitely because, you know, when I was writing that book down, I didn't know if my son was going to survive. He was in that place. One of the things with traumatic brain injuries that they don't tell you is they have um, a re really high suicide rate in the first couple of years as their brain is really unstable. So I didn't know if he's going to make it. It was a really scary time. And I wrote the book to show how you show up during challenges, how you make that commitment to yourself how you put yourself in your self-care first, that it's not selfish, it's selfless. So, you know, you have to own that mindset first in order to be strong enough when all these things come up where people will try to drag you into things you don't necessarily want to do or take your time away, et cetera. So it's, it's great for setting those boundaries and really getting committed to yourself first. That's awesome. I love that. Well, as usual, our conversations are, I always come away with, with tons of new knowledge. So I certainly appreciate it. And I know our listeners are going to uh, really want to do some deep dives into a lot of the stuff we mentioned. So is there best way to um, 
get involved with anything that you're doing now or, um, sure. Like, um, my podcast is easy. It's just subscribe, subscribe to JJ.com. How do you like that? Subscribe to JJ.com. And of course I've got my website, JJVirgin.com. That's got everything, everything over there, up there. I'm in the process of, uh, working on my next book. I always say my final book. I'm in the process of my (laughs) final book. Um, the virgin anti-diets coming out next year. And it really is to help reframe the way that we look at diets. I believe that diets do work. We just are using them incorrectly. We're getting, we use a diet short-term therapeutically for information to help put together a personalized eating plan that will work for you. And as things come up that you want to address, you, you know, focus on what shifts you might need to do and you see if they work or they don't work for you. And you put them into your everyday life rather than trying to live your life on different diets, which then sets you up for failure. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And I look forward to our future conversations. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.